I was thinking as we finished our last congregational number about Mr. Whitehead saying, great singing, you may be seated. I wonder if he would ever say, that wasn't so great singing, but you could be seated anyway. Um, But as I thought about that, I don't know why it caught my attention, but as I thought about it, I did think what a blessing it is um, to, even from my vantage point, look out and see you singing. And uh, singing with, apparently, as best as I could tell, your heart's engaged. And singing with praise and thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. And I think that our choir and the scripture reading and the prepared music um, is all part of what contributes to our hearts being full so that we join together in our singing. So thank you for all that have a part to do with that. And what a blessing it is to sing together of our Lord. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 16, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Before um, our break for a Christmas emphasis and then a New Year's look at our philosophy of ministry, we had proceeded in a study of this book of Matthew from chapter 1, verse 1, right up through verse 17 of this 16th chapter. And this latest section that we are in, which started back at chapter 14, it records a period in the life and ministry of our Lord where we find him largely withdrawing from ministry to the unbelieving and rejecting crowds. And at the same time, we find him zeroing in on ministry with his closest disciples in a more focused fashion. And earlier in the scene that we're dropping back into this morning, Jesus had guided the discussion with the twelve towards nailing down without any ambiguity what his true identity is. In verse 13, if you're there now, you can see that he asked those closest disciples what the current popular opinion was of himself. And they respond with a number of of seemingly complimentary suggestions. So in verse 14, the first one was, John the Baptist, which was as revered of a figure in the Jewish culture of that day as any. I mean, he's willing to lose his life to call out the immorality of Herod and his illicit wife. The second one they suggest in verse uh, 14 is Elijah, the one who had challenged people to not keep thinking you could straddle the fence between two loyalties. And then all alone with the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he won a showdown by seeking God to call down fire upon the altar. And then we have, before the verse is over, uh, Jeremiah, one of the four major prophets. And the only one in that category of major prophets to pin two books of the Old Testament Scripture So you talk about John and Elijah and Jeremiah, and those are highly complimentary suggestions. But they are still 
far short of the affirmation you have to come to to be right with God. So Jesus continues in verse 15 with his probing, and now he says, right to those, but who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter looks, and think about this again, he looks right into the face of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to that man, you are the Christ. And that is a word that referred to an anointed one. And for those immersed in the Old Testament, they knew that was a word for God's Messiah, the promised Savior, the ultimate prophet, priest, and preeminently in that word in the Old Testament, the King. And Peter not only says to that man standing in front of him, you're the Christ, but he continues as you see it there, you are the son of the living God. And when we explored that in detail, we noted the primary emphasis of that expression is to say that Jesus was of the very same nature as God, meaning that he is God who has come and taken on human flesh. That would be completely absurd to suggest that about any man with the exception of one man. <laughs> and we have absolute confirmation he's, he's on the right track because verse 17, we read Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The only way you could get to that conclusion is if the God of heaven opened your eyes and opened your heart and revealed himself, and that's exactly what had happened. And we finished last time by noting what the second psalm calls for as a right response to the Christ, the Son of God. And you may remember that that psalm finishes by saying, be wise now, therefore. How should you respond to the knowledge of the Christ, the Son of God? Be wise. And then he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice even with trembling kiss or do homage to the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are all they that put their trust in him serve repent reverence submit do homage rejoice and trust and brethren if these movements are the movements of your inner man then you are, as Jesus told Peter, you are blessed by God. But if you stop short of those affirmations, if you stop short of those movements in your inner man, you stop short of a blessed relationship with God. And after he brings the disciples to this, again, definite conclusion regarding his identity... He is now going to shift the focus a bit. 
And the focus of his teaching in verse number 18 is going to shift towards future ministry. Then we're going to come back in a few minutes and look at the entire verse. But for now, I just want you to look with me at the phrase, at the last phrase. I'm going to pick it up where Jesus says, I will. And I just want you to see this little bit of shift. Notice, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against it. The advancement of the purposes of the Christ, the Son of God, would in the future come through what he refers to here as his church. And I know it's a simple observation, but do take note of the fact that he uses a personal, possessive pronoun. Jesus said, It is what? It's my church. The church is not the son of God's own possession merely because the father ordained him to be the head, though he certainly did. But the church is the son's possession because Jesus would go on to pay the price to purchase it to himself. The apostle Paul in Acts 20 and verse 28 refers to the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. It's true that every individual believer is purchased to God through what Peter describes as the precious blood of Christ. We are personally, we are individually not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are whose? Which are God's. And in the same way, we corporately and collectively, we're not our own. This church is not ours. We as a church have been bought with a price. And even in the context of a church, we have no right to our own agenda and the promotion of our own cause and to seeking our own profit. We are his church. And then notice, not only does Jesus claim the church is his possession, but he also promised that he would do the building of it. I will build my church. And the knowledge that Christ is the builder of his own church nurtures a God dependence and a confidence in God that is so important for the advancement of the cause of Christ. Right in this passage, we're going to see that God uses men and he tells us how he uses men. But brethren, if any man or any group of men start acting like it's up to us to do the building of the church, we are going to, at a minimum, get in the way of the real progress of that church. If any man thinks it's up to us, we could, with a flurry of activities that are in our own strength and keeping with our own wisdom, invest and, and yet see it to be ultimately in vain. We could attempt to build a church through unworthy means that produce a show of success that isn't ultimately to the glory of God. We could try in our own efforts and end up throwing the towel in in despair. It's never going to happen. And more. And I would just say to you in my case, and I'm, I'm talking about in reference to myself as a pastor, I'm aware enough of my own 
inadequacies in several realms that I've, if I thought the growth of a church depended upon me, I, I seriously would despair that it's ever going to happen. And after now a few decades in ministry, I'm aware enough about some of the struggles and some of the opposition that any ministry faces, and sometimes the opposition feels like it's from the very gates of hell. <clears throat> that if it were not for the kind of promise here that the church is his and he'll do the building, pastoring a church of any kind would be one of the last things I would want to do. But do you know what? When we come to grips with our own insufficiency. We're in the exact position that brings God glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, referring to the minister, says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of who? Of God and not of us. And when you get that truth straight, you really discover that awareness of our needs is actually helpful. If the resurrected and ascended Christ is going to increasingly build a healthy church and he uses us to do it, he's going to get the glory for his power doing what he could, as the only one who could do. We get to be in on the blessing of being usable vessels. And then I want to highlight a third truth from the broader context leading right up into the first part of this verse. And I'm, I'm going to state it first and try to display it for us. And this is going to be the bulk of our message. But the truth is this, that every true church is built upon the proclamation of the true identity of Jesus Christ. All right? Every church is the Lord's own possession. The Lord, who is the possessor of the church, said, I'm going to do the building. But upon what foundation does he do the building? Every true church is built upon the proclamation of the true identity of Christ. Now, I've just had us review the sequence, again, starting back in verse 13. So you could just... Circle back through yourself. The Lord asked this question about the, the popular opinion of his identity. And in verse number 15, then he narrows it in more specifically about what do you, who do you say that I am? And when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the Lord confirmed that answer is right. They've been blessed by the Father, and now right into verse 18, as the focus shifts to future ministry, the Lord says to Peter, I say unto you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. All right, what is the rock upon which the Lord builds his church? In order to rephrase that question slightly, like we even have in our service guide this morning, what is the foundation of church growth? He's going to do the building of what is his, but upon what foundation does he do it? 
Well, if you are just talking about the size and capacity of a church building, and you are looking to find the largest church in the world, you would eventually travel to Rome. And inside of what is known as Vatican City, you would find a church building with measurements that are staggering. I, it blew my mind reading about it. It is just under, listen to this, 250,000 square feet. It is about 240 yards in length. So think about a church building that is more than two football fields put end to end. At its peak, it is about 450 feet high. I've seen the seating capacity estimated between 20,000 and 35,000. I'm not sure the discrepancy. But I've seen the standing capacity in that church consistently projected as 60,000 people. Now, that is nearly six times the size of Clemson's basketball stadium. Six times the size of Little John Coliseum. And that building is called St. Peter's Basilica. The structure is built over Peter's tomb so that Peter's bones are actually in the foundation of that church. And if you want to know why it is St. Peter's Basilica and it's built with Peter's bones in it, here is an official Catholic declaration. I'm quoting. Christ made Peter the head of his church when he told Peter that he would be the rock on which he would build his church. Is that what Christ said here in Matthew 16, 18? Well, do you know that some even non-Catholic evangelicals who would not make the claim, that is, if you're an evangelical, you do not make the claim that Peter is the head of the church, but some that would not make that claim still would assert that Peter was the rock on which Christ would build his church. How would you get there? By the way, I actually saw a guy make that claim today, in a pa uh, I'm this week in a pastor's forum. That if you just read this the way it is, it, it's clear that Peter is a rock. Well, one part of the argument for that involves a play on of words. The name Peter is from the Greek term Petros, which is the word for stone. The word Jesus uses here for rock is the very similar word Petra, which obviously sounds very much like 
Patras and is clearly closely related. So the Lord said to Peter, you are Petras, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. And some have said they're basically synonyms. They're that closely related. Some would point to Ephesians 2, and I won't have you turn there now, where we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And would further add that when you turn to Acts, you observe Peter in the early days of the church as the primary spokesman of sorts. Others were ministering, but when the crowd gathered on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and preached to those thousands. So, so even if you would grieve, and we should grieve at the Catholic flagrantly unscriptural assertion that Peter is the head of the church. But even if you did that, some still see the right interpretation of the rock as Peter. However, when you do look at those words, as close as they are, they are different words. Peter is the word for a stone. While Petra is, and I should say Petras, Peter, is the word for a stone, while Petra is a word for a large rock, like a boulder, and at other times like a bedrock. Then I'll just give you one instance in the scripture. When Jesus used the illustration of a wise man and a foolish man, the foolish man built his house on a sand, and the wise man built his house on a... Petra. Okay, this is a big enough stone, if you will, bedrock, ledge of stone, that you build a house on it. So the words aren't identical, and there is even some contrast between a stone and a large rock, even a bedrock ledge. You could also take another look at the Ephesians reference. And again, I won't have you go there for time's sake. But while the apostles and prophets have a foundational role, he goes on to say, Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The reality is that the apostles laid the foundation by pointing to Christ as the cornerstone. But I do want to take us to two other passages that point us away from Peter and towards Christ. And I want to have you turn, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you get there in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 6 through the first part of verse 9, the church is compared to a field that is owned by God. So there is an agricultural analogy here. And in that field, a minister like Paul in verse 6, if you'll look there, could be compared to somebody who does what? Okay, and another minister like Apollos might be compared to somebody who waters. But it is very clear that God is the one that causes the crop to grow. The harvest giver is the, it is the Lord. Now, at the end of verse 9, the analogy shifts. You can see the first part of the verse is still talking about the field. 
agriculture, but it shifts by the end of the verse to architecture, and the church is now compared to a building. And now the minister named Paul, who in verse 6 did the planting, here in verse number 10, he does the what? Okay, he does the laying of the foundation. You can see, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the, laid the foundation. Okay, so he did the laying, but if you want to talk about the foundation the church is built on, look at verse 11. It says it clearly. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is what or who? Jesus Christ. There isn't any other foundation. There's no room for who here? Okay, there's no room for Peter or any other man. This is the one foundation that can be laid. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And it is this Peter that we're talking about that the Spirit of God superintends to pen this epistle. And I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And in verse number 3, you can see that Peter's addressing people he regards as having tasted and concluded that the Lord is good. They have put their faith and trust in him. This same Lord, in verse 4, is alive. They've come to him as unto a living stone. But this Lord who is alive had been previously what? Okay, he had been previously, here we read the expression, disallowed indeed of men. He had been previously rejected. And we know from Psalm 118 and Acts 4, both passages that use this same imagery, we know that that rejecting of that stone is used to describe Jewish leadership who pursued the crucifixion of Christ. But continuing on here, <coughs> In this passage, though he was rejected, in verse 4, though he was rejected of man, he is God's what? He is God's chosen one. He is the anointed one. He is the, he is the Christ. So, again, as those passages declare, God raised him from the dead. The stone which the builders rejected is today a living stone. God made the discarded one the cornerstone. Now skip down here to verse 6 for our, for our purposes. Notice, wherefore also, he writes, it is contained in the scripture. And I'm just going to pause here to alert you. He's now quoting Isaiah 28 and verse 16. So it had been contained in previous scripture. Notice what he says. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him 
shall not be confounded. I've just had us turn to these two, but it is hard to read any of these other scriptures and conclude that the rock on which Christ would build his church is Peter. In fact, all other scriptures turn us away from Peter and turn us to Christ himself as the foundation. So should we conclude then, <clears throat> back in Matthew chapter 16, in fact, let's go back there. Should we conclude back in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus is just using figurative imagery to say, in essence, that he is the rock. Well, I want us to look at these connections. As you go back, <clears throat> look again at verse 18. And let me ask you, is Jesus saying, you are Petros, and upon Petra, which is really me, I will build my church. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, you are Petros, and upon Petra, which is me, I'm going to build my church. Well, I would say to you that we are really close. We are way closer than if we think about Peter. But I do want to suggest that there is one more degree of precision and I think some additional clarity for us to get here. And I want to suggest that the usage of the similar words does involve Peter. The rock, though, isn't Peter personally. But the rock is the declaration that Peter had just made. What declaration are we talking about? It's the declaration of verse 16, right? Peter had just said, I mean, the Lord had said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, I think for himself and representing what he thought was the rest of those closest disciples, okay, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm telling you that my best understanding of this text is that Jesus was saying that he was going to build his church upon the proclamation that Peter had just uttered. The proclamation of his true identity and of all of its ramifications. And I'm going to have us turn again. And this time to Acts chapter 2 because I, I think we get a place to see these various connections come together. Acts chapter 2 we are told in verse 1, took place on the day of Pentecost, which is about 50 days after the Jews had condemned Jesus to die by crucifixion. And when we get to verse number 14, we do read about Peter standing up now with the 11, because Judas Iscariot has gone out and betrayed and, of course, took his own life. And he lifts up his voice, and 
we read of the first message in the inauguration day of the Christian church. And I want us to come down to verse 36. Notice where Peter's preaching leads to as he wraps up this message. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and what? There he is. What's he doing? He's, pro he's making that same proclamation. Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, they were convicted at, the, at those words, and they cried out in verse 37, what should we do? And, and the first word of Peter's response in verse 38 is what? Peter said unto them, repent. He goes on to talk about being baptized in the name of Christ. Okay, his identity and the ramifications of that identity. And then I want you to notice verse 41. What happened when that took place? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were what? <laughs> Added. That sounds like growth, right? That sounds like something's being built. What was being built when this happened? Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to the what? The, okay, and who's doing the adding? The Lord is adding to whose church? His church. What did he use to do the adding? What he used is a faithful messenger that stands up and proclaims his true identity. And upon that rock, he builds his church. When we had the privilege of joining the staff at Falls Baptist Church, it was at that time averaging 800 to 850 in attendance. Uh, when we left, Seven years later, it was closer to about 1,100, and some days we had quite a bit more. But after a little over seven years of ministry there, in October of 2000, I accepted a call to a mission work in Nova Scotia. And in November, I led my first official service as pastor. It happened to be on a Wednesday night. And that Wednesday night, there were four of us in attendance. On the following Sunday morning, there were 21. And Sunday night, there were less than 10. And by the second Sunday, I was sitting in a parking lot with one of the long-term members, and I realized that the leadership in the candidating process had not been forthright about several matters. 
and I was already starting to think by the second Sunday, what have I gotten in myself into and what am I getting my young family into? In January, I started making regular trips on my own while we tried to make arrangements for moving our family to another country and just because of the time of year, I would typically fly in uh, winter nights after dark and I would drive from the airport an hour and a half depending on what the snow was like, maybe two or more. And I would get further away from the lights of cities and it would get more and more remote and more and more dark and then the provision of my housing in those days was a basement apartment that had no windows and most mornings when I would open the door to go out I'd struggle to open the door because of all the new snow that had fallen or been blown into there and I'm not saying it had to be this way. It probably shouldn't have been this way, but, but there were some dark and lonely times in my heart. And again, during those days that rolled into weeks, it was, what have I done? What are we doing? But during those days, one of the verses of the scripture that God just so mercifully kept bringing to my mind to become a regular pattern of praying was this very text. And I just kept talking to the Lord about his claim that the church was his possession. And I just kept talking to the Lord about the fact that he promised to do the building of what was his. And I wasn't thinking of a numerical growth target at all, but I did keep saying, Lord, since this is where we believe you put us, I'm pleading with you, would you show your hand and build your church right here where you placed us? By the teaching that was here and guided by the teaching that is involved here, we did purpose to make proclaiming the identity of Christ as the central preaching theme. And of course, we preach the whole counsel of the word of God because all the scripture is the mind of Christ. And we can preach every passage of the scripture the way it is because Christ's saving work is the provision to live out all of what advances his cause in the earth. But true, healthy churches establish the proclamation of the identity of Christ as their primary theme. And they don't get deterred from it, no matter what the polls indicate people want to hear when they come to a religious service. The day came where we had, I think, about eight or nine university students. St. Francis Xavier University was down the road from our little mission church, and we had some of these students over to our house. We had even a little questionnaire about some of their backgrounds, but about strengths and weaknesses of our ministry. And a particular weakness one of the, the girls' students wrote was, here is a weakness of our church. I'm quoting, continual lectures about salvation. 
And honestly, when I read that, I couldn't help but rejoice that an outsider's words testified that is a dominant theme. Now, brethren, in time, our numbers went up to just short of 100. I think 97 one day without something special. And then old problems resurfaced, and we went back down. And then with much counsel and leadership from our pastor and our mission board, and with some opposition, we started a new church. That church is about to enter its second auditorium. That'll seat about 200. In the mercy of God, the first church is averaging 50 to 60. Boogie and I got to see both of them over Thanksgiving week. The numbers aren't the growth. The numbers go up and the numbers go down for all kinds of reasons. Some of them less ideal and some of them ideal because God's relocating people. But the growth, the growth is a 60-year-old lady with multiple broken marriages getting saved and baptized. And the growth is a 24-year-old lady that had lived in sin for years getting saved and baptized. And the growth is children getting baptized in a swimming pool because we're meeting in a motel conference room. And some of those children that got baptized in that swimming pool, they're married now and they're raising their own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they are living stones in a church. And for whatever it's worth, one little kid that got saved up there is our assistant pastor now. And there's so much more. Our Lord promised to build his church. And as we look to him to do it, it is our responsibility to proclaim his identity and its ramifications for a life. Now, I want to say to all of us this morning, there is no other foundation. Now, there's no other foundation for a church but there's no other foundation for a life. There's no other foundation for a family. There is no other foundation than a right relationship with Jesus Christ. But in the words of Peter, if you will build on that foundation, listen to this, whoever believes on that living stone will not be confounded. You'll not be ashamed. That's one of the nuances of that word. You'll not be disappointed if you will build on that foundation. You will find him to be the very anchor of your soul and your home and by God's grace, a church that he builds doing his work. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And would you, at a minimum, thank God for his work in your life and 
in your home and thank God for his work to build his church. And again, would you just let this kind of theme to turn you to cast your confidence on him?